Production support for Noon Edition comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation, partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. I'm your host, Bob Zaltzberg. Co-hosting today with WFIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire, and we're updating the COVID-19 situation after the Johnson & Johnson vaccine was suspended, and we're talking about ways to combat vaccine hesitancy. We have four guests with us joining us by Zoom. We have Penny Cottle, Monroe County Health Department Administrator, Sherry Lewis, who is the Green County Health Department Administrator, Dr. Tom Rismalis, who's an IU Health Southern Indiana physician provider, and he specializes in infectious disease, and Lynn Toma, HealthLink Pharmacy Residency Program Director. You can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition, and you can send us your questions there. And you can also send us your questions for the show at news at indianapublicmedia.org. Thank you all for being here with us today. Dr. Rismalis, good to have you back. And I wanted to start the show with you just to talk about, um, you know, where we are here in Monroe County with IU Health in terms of the spread of the of the disease and then you know i'd ask you to talk a little a little bit about the johnson and johnson suspension uh certainly yeah glad to be back um you know from i think people are certainly aware of uh, the, the statistics and i think penny can certainly uh, bring those more up to date perhaps better than i can we're we're certainly less we're, we're seeing less uh COVID infection than we did a few months ago in november and december but um, we haven't, uh, we sort of plateaued at a lower level. Uh, the hospitalizations have decreased, but we still have uh, patients who are treating for this. So we're not out of the woods yet, but um, I think things look a little bit better than they did two, three months ago. And we're hoping that we don't see any uh, increase in cases uh, as uh, restrictions and so forth um, are lessened around the state. Um, why don't we why don't we wait for the Johnson and Johnson discussion? I'll go I'll go sure. to Penny, Penny next, and then Sherry, and talk about you know your different county statistics. and And Penny, I know that uh, Monroe County has has kept restrictions in place. We've had some questions to WFIU about how long we're going to be masking here in Monroe County. So if you could just give us an overview, and then talk about some of the specifics of the restrictions. Certainly, and I have to tell you, I had some technical difficulty, so I apologize if I missed an earlier question or or something, but we we are very concerned about the uptick in cases that we are seeing and um, the variants, uh, the UK variant is predominant now in the US and in Indiana. We know that that's more easily transmitted, um, so we are continuing our mask mandate. The current regulations kind of stand as they were at least until May 28th. And then the board will meet, the Board of Health will meet on May 4th and they'll look at what the current data is, what the situation is and make some determinations about what to do next. Um, They could certainly rescind those regulations early or make changes to them early or they could extend it if they, if numbers are continuing to rise and not improving. So essentially we just need everyone to continue to make their appointments to be vaccinated um, at their, their first convenience to do that, but also to maintain uh, all the other precautions that we've been doing this past year or so. And that includes masking, washing your hands, uh, maintaining a physical distancing, uh, with people that are outside of your household and unvaccinated and those kinds of things. We can get through this, I believe, if we just continue to do all of those things and get until we can get people vaccinated and we get a high percentage of that. Penny, what's the thinking in Monroe County about keeping in more restrictions than 
the state has after uh, Governor Holcomb lifted a lot of those restrictions? Well, you know, we have um, been a little bit different from the state and there are other counties. I think there are about 10 other counties who have kept their mask requirement or other restrictions um, when the state uh, lessened theirs and, and took those away. And, you know, I have to say that I'm, I'm concerned that part of that relaxation could be feeding what we're currently seeing. Um, it, we're all tired. We're tired of wearing masks. We're tired of, you know, having to do all of these things. And so when we, I think that when we hear and feel like, oh, you know, you don't have to do this anymore. You think that everything is fine and it's not. Um, we're getting there. I, I don't want to sound, you know, like, you know, I'm totally negative. I think that we're getting there. We're making good strides, but we need to continue to do these things. It's what has kept really Monroe County in better shape than some counties. Uh, we've had our own challenges and I certainly everything has not been perfect here, but we have also um, had situations that have been better than many other counties. Sherry Lewis from the Greene County Health Department. Um, you're in a more rural setting, and um, I'd like for you to go over the numbers that you're seeing. Are you seeing an uptick since the mask ordinance uh, was lifted? And is Greene County just following the state's lead? Yes, yeah, so Greene County is currently following the state's lead because we're still in a low, very low to moderate spread. We're blue on the county's uh, color-coded metric uh, map. And our Board of Health will look at that and make a determination if we need to um, instill more um, guidelines than what the, current, the governor currently has in place if we move up in the color-coded map. So, for example, if we go to uh, orange or red, we may um, incorporate mass mandates, move from an advisory to a mandate again. How successful have you been in getting um, vaccinations in Green County? You know, we, we started out very well, and it seems like once um, the county opened uh, to, or the state opened to, uh, the age range, 18 and older, we saw a slowdown. So we definitely see some vaccine hesitancy between uh, individuals from 18 to, you know, 50 years old. Um, it has been uh, very concerning, um, especially as things are opening up again here in the state of Indiana to get those individuals interested in getting vaccinated. Um, the, the best approach that we have now is reminding people that if you are fully vaccinated, you do not have to quarantine if you're in close contact. And, you know, this may be important to people because it allows them to continue to um, do some of the things that they couldn't do um, before under a um, more restrictive all right. Thanks a lot, Sherry Lewis from Greene County. We'll talk more about uh, the hesitancy here in a bit. Lynn Toma is joining us today, and uh, Lynn is HealthLink Pharmacy Residency Program Director. And Lynn, we've done several programs uh, on COVID this year, but we've not talked about the, the pharmacy's role in trying to help um, eradicate this, this pandemic. So um, you know, I want to ask you to talk about you know, how this has changed the role of pharmacists and how you're, you know, in your residency program, how you're training pharmacists uh, during this time period. And if you could unmute. Sure, absolutely. Thanks for the question. So first of all, I would say that, you know, pharmacies playing along with like local health departments and hospitals and community health centers playing a large role across the state and across the nation in getting people vaccinated. So we have several chain pharmacies across the state of Indiana and as well as several independents that you can vaccinate. So, you know, if you're using uh, that website, the rshot.gov, you can certainly choose a pharmacy to, to get your vaccination at as well. But it's, um, I don't know if Sheree or Penny is the one that said it, we're, 
we're all just very tired. So I would say um, that's how things have changed the most um, because just like with everybody else, we're doing our normal jobs. So, you know, taking care of patients in the pharmacy, checking prescriptions, um, doing all of those in day-to-day tasks along with giving vaccines. Um, and then I, my practice site specifically is within a federally qualified health center. So we've been vaccinating since about um, mid-January and continue to vaccinate now. And so we have really pulled all of our pharmacists um, out of the clinic for not full-time, but anywhere from, you know, 40 to 80% so that they can help with these vaccination efforts just because like we didn't have extra resources when we started this. So our pharmacists, our care team nurses, our medical assistants have all played a huge role in making sure that we get our community communities vaccinated. So that's been huge. And as far as the residency program goes, um, it's just been a whirlwind of a year all around. So just making sure that <laughs> they're up to speed on flexibility and adaptability, which they, I think that they are at this point. I have a question for Penny. So throughout the pandemic, we've seen that most cases and, and deaths certainly were among older Hoosiers. And I'm curious with the numbers ticking up now and more older Hoosiers are, are vaccinated, what age group are we seeing most of these, these cases in? Yeah, and in our uh, one o'clock press conference, pray hear the hospital talk more, more about this as well. So I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we're seeing more cases in the 20 to 30 year olds. Uh, certainly we still see cases in all age groups. And, um, you know, we've got, not everybody has been vaccinated and uh, nothing is perfect. And so you could still get infected even if you were vaccinated. So um, it, although that, that risk of that is low, we're seeing cases in younger people and the hospital has been reporting that more of their hospitalizations as they are increasing are in that like 30 to 40 year old group. Um, so that again, very concerning and, and a reason that we want people to be vaccinated. Um, I think the fact that we can see that deaths have slowed drastically, hospitalizations in those older, more vulnerable populations have slowed that's an indicator to me where we've done a good job of getting people vaccinated that that works and that helps. And so if we can continue to get people vaccinated, I, I would like to hope that uh, we will see fewer cases in those other age groups as well. Talking about COVID-19 today on Noon Edition, uh, we've talked about it a lot this year, but they're, they're, it's ever-changing. So we're we're getting into this issue again. If you have questions or comments, um, you can tweet us at Noon Edition with your questions or your comments, and you can send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. Dr. Rasmalis, I, I, to follow up on what Penny said, I was talking a couple weeks ago with Dr. Handel, who's the chief of medicine, as you know, at IU Health South Central Region. And he said that uh, he's also an ER doc, and he said that, that there were people presenting to the hospital every day still who were infected with COVID. Is, is that still the case to your knowledge? Um, yeah, we still see quite a few patients that the, uh, the uh, uh, elderly cases, um, you know, in those individuals who've been vaccinated seem to have decreased, but there's plenty of transmission in the community and we're still seeing active cases, cases and we're still admitting patients uh, with COVID, uh, for sure. Um, so, you know, with with more and more people vaccinated, and this is, uh, we'll start with you, but then um, anybody can can jump in on this question. You know, a lot of people do believe that since they're vaccinated, that they can sort of go out and live their lives the way they always have. I mean, what what precautions should people keep taking? For instance, if if you know, six or eight or 10 people who are vaccinated want to get together somewhere uh, in a restaurant or for dinner. Is that a safe thing to do? Um, 
Should they stay outside? I mean, what are what are precautions you think people who are vaccinated should continue to take? Sure. There's a lot of still unanswered questions, and that's why we want to be a little bit cautious about this. The CDC certainly says that individuals who have been fully vaccinated can meet in small groups with other individuals who have been fully vaccinated and not have to take quite the same precautions. Um, but when you're out and about in the community, um, uh, there are people who are not vaccinated. There are people who may be uh, carrying the virus asymptomatically. Um, we still don't know entirely how readily people who are vaccinated might be able to still transmit some virus. I can tell you we have admitted people to Bloomington Hospital with COVID who have been fully vaccinated. So that certainly does happen. So we still want to be cautious until we get enough of the population vaccinated that we really see a dramatic decline and, and you know, the, the number of new cases approaching zero, then we'll all feel uh, that we can open things up and be free to do whatever we want to do. I want to emphasize, I want to emphasize something you said and make sure that I heard you correctly, because I think that most people who've been fully vaccinated and I count myself as one of them have thought, well, you know, if I, even if I get COVID, it's not going to be very serious, but you just said that people who have been fully vaccinated have still been seriously ill enough to be admitted to the hospital, correct? We have had those cases. Yes. I think being fully vaccinated uh, is great and it decreases dramatically your risk of getting it. And it does decrease the severity of illness, but it's just not a hundred percent. Okay. Um, Lynn Tome, I wanted to move on to the the whole question of the Johnson and Johnson vaccine uh, in the pharmacies that you the pharmacy you work in and the the pharmacies that you have are in the the healthcare facility you work in and the pharmacies that you work with is the J and J vaccine used very often. Yeah, so we actually um, were able to get the Johnson and Johnson vaccine as a part of the federal program. So we started administering it, I believe the week of March 8th. So we've been administering it for, for some time and we were actually getting to the point before we paused earlier this week that that's what people's preference were. They appreciated the one dose, the convenience factor. Um, and so more people were calling in asking for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine than the Moderna vaccine. And then, of course, uh, you know, as of Tuesday, we it put a pause on administering that vaccine. And we have just seen hesitancy go up dramatically. Um, it, it's been scary. So we had our schedule booked out like through this Friday and then gave everybody the opportunity. Thankfully, we had enough supply of Moderna that we could have switched everybody over but um, gave everybody the opportunity. And so for instance, today I can just throw out some numbers. We originally had 200 people scheduled at the beginning of the day today. When I started drawing up doses, that number was down to 152. And right now I'm looking at the schedule, it's 131. So we've had 70 people drop off of the schedule since Tuesday. So um, it's a little disheartening. We're just really going to have to, you know, fight this hesitancy, encourage people to get the vaccine and also letting people know that the best vaccine is the one that's available today. It's the one that you can get today. So, um, I mean, that's just kind of been some of our experience thus far, hoping to get an answer um, from Johnson and Johnson though sooner rather than later. Let me follow up on that. Have, have you, so do you think the reason is that people had, were sort of um, just ready to get that one shot and then have two weeks of, of it taking effect and then be over it. And so maybe they're, they're sort of playing the odds thinking, well, if I wait a couple of weeks, maybe I'll still be able to get that rather than go through Moderna, which essentially is a, is a two shot six week process. Sure. I think it goes both ways. So we've seen, I mean, with the calls that we've made and calls we've had coming in, we've seen both sides. So either A, like they don't want to get a vaccine at all anymore because they're scared or they're going to wait out that Johnson and Johnson and kind of see what happens. Okay, Sarah. We got a question that I think Glenn, you're probably best equipped to answer. It says a year ago, we thought it could be almost two years before a vaccine was ready. What changed and how do we know this is our most effective solution? 
I'll, I'll answer that question um, to the best of my ability. And then if somebody else wants to jump in, that would be great. Um, but as far, I know a lot of people have concerns about the vaccine and how quickly it rolled out, but oops, sorry about my email notifications coming through here. <laughs> um, but what, what we do know is that this process went quickly because it could, and we had the resources to make that happen. So typically like with a drug or a vaccine, that it goes through three phases of clinical trials. So phase one, phase two, and phase three before it goes to the FDA for approval. Well, in this case with the vaccines, those trials were overlapping so that we could get the vaccine to the public quicker. So no steps were missed, but we just had those trials overlapping. Additionally, once the vaccines got to phase three of the clinical trial, distribution started so that are not distribution, sorry, manufacturing started so that when the vaccine was hopefully approved, it was kind of, you know, like waiting on bated breath um, for that approval. So that manufacturing could allow for distribution as soon as the vaccine was approved. So that's why what in December we saw with Pfizer and Moderna, the vaccine was approved and it was at sites the next day and being administered, I believe in some cases, like within 48 hours. So that um, that's kind of how the process worked. If somebody else wants to answer the question about how um, we know this is the best solution, I don't know if I have a, a great answer for that off the cuff. Dr. Tom, do you want to try that? Um, I'd say I concur and I would say two additional things. One, this vaccine development was accelerated because we had SARS in 2002 and we had already studied this virus in detail. And this is just, a, this is a very similar virus to what we experienced back then. Uh, secondly, this platform, the messenger RNA vaccines is not new. They've been working on these for, for over a decade. And in fact, this was one of the vaccines that had, this type of vaccine was developed to treat Ebola. So we were already running when we had, when they started to work on this SARS-CoV-2 uh, vaccine. They already had a lot of, of uh, uh, experience, understood the virus, understood the platform, and, and as well as uh, what was just commented that uh, you know the the development manufacturing and the studies went simultaneously so they could speed that process but these are the messenger rna vaccines uh speaking of those initially those are remarkably good vaccines i mean it's if you look at it from a scientific standpoint they're well well thought out they're targeted um you know i expect that this will be a platform for vaccines going forward that influenza vaccines and so forth may migrate to this type of manufacture rather than the older systems that we use because they offer so many advantages. So uh, that's good. In terms of controlling an epidemic, um, there's really only a couple things that are really going to be effective. Uh, obviously vaccination is number one. That's how we get ourselves out of this. Otherwise, we're going to be dealing with uh, you know, restrictions and isolation and masks and, and uh, problems uh, for many, many months to come. How do you get that message to people? And I guess I'm going to ask um, Sherry Lewis first about how, how do you get that message to people? You were talking a little bit about uh, hesitancy in Greene County and Lynn was talking about hesitancy and that she's seeing now. How do you convince people that what Dr. Rismala said, that vaccination is how we get out of this. How do you convince people of that? We're working interoperability with uh, current uh, groups and advisory boards here in Green County, like PACE and um, other coalitions to get the word out about vaccination. And since they've actually changed, that's where we've seen uh, the hesitancy again through this younger population and just encouraging them that, you know, with the new CDC guidelines that once you're fully vaccinated, you can uh, participate with other people who are fully vaccinated, as well as um, not be required to quarantine if you 
become a close contact. You'll just watch for symptoms for you know those 14 days, according to the CDC. So what this does, it allows you not to miss work or to um, miss a sporting event that you may have been wanting to attend all year. So um, that's the way we've tried to get people in our clinics to get vaccinated. Right now we're at about 17% of our population fully vaccinated. And you know we see that as a ways to go. Penny, what's that number in Monroe County and how have you gone about trying to uh, recruit people and convince them that vaccination is the right way to go? Yeah, we have about 23% of our eligible uh, population that's been vac fully vaccinated so far. Uh, that continues to, to grow. And certainly we, we have some advantage in that we've got IU Health Hospital that has been doing vaccination clinics. We've had the health department clinic at the convention center. Um, IU is now doing their students and we're transitioning, you know, we've kind of got two health department clinics going, the one at, at Assembly Hall. Um, I know they've done, I think, 8,000 of their students already. So that is certainly helping. Everything Sherry said, I would ag agree with. And I think the other thing is trying to get people in various communities, you know, every social network um, has a leader in it and champions that uh, people look up to and it's finding those people uh, who are supportive and who can help encourage others and help them maybe get their questions answered. These are still, you know, very safe vaccines uh, from what we've seen. The system is working. The reason that J&J um, is on this pause and that those uh, conditions were no, were seen was because of the system that's in place for uh, identifying adverse reactions so that they can be looked at. Uh, so the system is working. And I think that we can take some uh, confidence in that, that the system is working. Vaccines in general are, are very safe and we encourage people to take them. But finding those champions in the community, I think, is what will help us through this. And so I'm going to say this other thing, um, Indiana, Indianapolis Motor Speedway, the state has had several clinics there um, switch to Moderna with this pause, and they too have had uh, a lot of cancellations. So they are now uh, vaccinating this weekend without an appointment. Um, so I just, they just put out a press release that just came across my, uh, my desk so people can go to um, Indianapolis Motor Speedway this weekend and get a dose of Moderna without an appointment. Penny, I, I read a lot of places that folks were hoping the Johnson & Johnson vaccine could really help them reach populations like the homeless and folks in rural areas because it was just that one shot. Um, I'm curious, is, is that something that you were doing here in Monroe County? And if so, is there a, a new plan to reach those sort of more vulnerable populations? The short answer is yes, that's exactly what we were doing. And we had not received a lot of Johnson & Johnson vaccine. So um, for us, there wasn't a big switch, right? But we were using it for homebound. We had used it in our shelters um, and, and we were using it to kind of schedule and plan out some um, more difficult to reach folks um, that might have challenges coming back twice, those kinds of things. And so we had to switch um, anyone who already had an appointment or those kind of clinics were scheduled. We had to switch that to Moderna, which from a logistical standpoint for us means that's two visits. And so now you've got that that clinic, that location, you're going to twice. So now you can't do a different one, um, you know, several weeks out. So it does make things more challenging in that respect. Um, but we will we will continue to pivot just like we have all this last 15 months or so. We pivot every day, it seems, as something new comes our way. Mm -hmm. And can you remind us how effective is it if folks don't come back for the second shot? 
I don't, you know, Dr. Smallish, you might have a better, I don't have a any kind of a specific number on the first shot. Certainly your, get your greatest effectiveness after your second dose of Moderna or Pfizer. And we want people to, to get both doses. That's what's most important. Uh, but I, I, I don't know, Dr. Smallish, yeah. do you know off the top of your head? Um, yeah, after, um after the first dose, the protection from a, a single dose is probably in the range of 60 to 70%, but which is not bad necessarily, but we don't know then the duration of the immunity. Because the second dose not only boosts the immunity, it prolongs it. So okay. Okay. for that reason, we certainly want people to get two doses of the mRNA vaccines. Right. Uh, we, we got another question and Dr. Zmalis, I think this is probably for you. Um, someone is saying, I'm fully vaccinated, but my kids are not. What is safe for us to do? Yeah, all these, all these kinds of questions are always difficult ones because it depends upon the circumstance and what the kids have been doing and so forth. If you've been fully vaccinated and um, you have, let's say, some younger grandkids that have been, uh, who are well and who, uh, uh, have not uh, put themselves in high risk type settings, um, you can probably visit safely because you've been fully vaccinated. Um, but, you know, when we talk about these kind of settings, it's a matter of risk. What's high risk, what's low risk. But those kind of circumstances when you're meeting with non-vaccinated people are not no risk. All right, we're talking with uh, several guests today about uh, the COVID-19 vaccinations and about the uh, pause in the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. If you want to send us your questions, you can send them to at, um, at Noon Edition. We're on Twitter, and you can also send them to news at indianapublicmedia.org. I want to continue with Dr. Osmalis for, for just a minute here, and I hope we don't get too far in the weeds, but the... Um, the question that I would have is um, six out of 6.8 million people. That's how many people I think have been um, sickened by the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. How, how does that, um, can you put that in perspective for us about, you know, in, in epidemiology, why do you, why do you stop a vaccine from rolling out at that small a number? Sure. That's a, that's a, as you mentioned, that's a very, very small number. Um, the reason they put the vaccine on hold is to look more carefully. You know, this was not entirely an unexpected situation. They were watching very carefully to see if this there may be any such side effects since the AstraZeneca vaccine that's being used the, the, in uh, Europe and around the world uh, had noted some similar episodes of thrombosis and blood clots. And since it and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine are both adenovirus vector-based vaccines, they wondered if there might be something similar. So they were looking and waiting and watching. And uh, as mentioned by Penny, the vaccine adverse event reporting system, um, you know, was, was used and, and picked this up uh, very quickly. So six cases and six million is a very low number. For example, um, it's estimated that we have, I don't know, five to 10 serious allergic reactions to penicillin when we prescribe that per every um, uh, 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 10,000 doses. And so, you know, this is dramatically smaller than many risks that we take uh, every day uh, with, with other prescriptions, with other medicines, with other medical treatments. So very, very, very low risk, but certainly a serious one and reasonable, I think, to pause to make sure we understand the spectrum of the clots, where they uh, develop, how they present, uh, make sure that all physicians know what to do to recognize them and understand the correct therapy for it. Uh, and so reasonable for those reasons to give it a pause, but uh, hopefully... Uh, we'll be able to resume using this vaccine in the future. Sorry, I'm not going to be able to to remember her name, but but we had uh, 
one of the researchers on the AstraZeneca vaccine, one of the, one of the people that was involved with the the um, trial, the study that was being done at IU on that vaccine, and she said exactly the same thing when it was paused um, earlier for the first time that this is the system working because once you see something, you sh- you shut it down, you try to fix it, and then you bring it back up. So, Penny, exactly. you got a comment, right? I. I did. The other thing that that I just want to add is that, you know, they are the CDC and the ACIP are looking at this data. We don't know yet that it, it that there is a direct link to the vaccine. And so that's also part of what they're looking at. Right. So is this a ca- kind of a cause and effect or is there some other link um, between these individuals? And so I know that they said they expect to to have some sort of recommendations at the end of next week uh, after they've looked at, at all of the data. So just, you know, we don't, we don't know yet kind of what, what's going on. So. Lynn, tell me, you were talking about the people that have, uh, have decided they aren't going to get the vaccine today that they've already made a reservation. Do you have, I know that there were, there was some, um, I read a story, I can't remember where it was out of, about uh, trying to really fortify that um, wait list in various places. Do you have a system in place where you can have people on a wait list that are ready to come in so that none of the vaccinations are wasted? Absolutely. So this was easier before we, um, you know, it was open season, as I think some people are calling it. But um, yeah, we do. So we work with community groups. So uh, some local colleges, um, business owners to just ask them who still needs the vaccine, who's ready to get it. Um, you know, at any like given time, would they be able to come over to get the vaccine or we can go to them. So we really like utilize those community partners so that we're not wasting. And I want to ask uh, Sherry Lewis about the people who are getting the vaccine in Greene County. I know we've we've had um, information come into us at the station that that in the rural areas, not all the vaccines are going to rural rural residents. That people who live in a city, like somebody who, who uh, again, Dr. Handel told me a couple of weeks ago that if you wanted to get an IU Health vaccination, it would take like three weeks to get an appointment. But if you wanted to go out to Paoli, it would, you could get it the next day. So are you keeping the uh, statistics and data on where your patients are coming from? Uh, Yes, we are. Um, With Greene County, we have several vaccination uh, clinics. We've got the health department who's doing, uh, we're doing an average uh, besides our pop-up clinics on a regular basis. We are doing 600 vaccinations a week. We have the hospital that's using Pfizer. Um, They're roughly doing 400 a week. And our FQHC is doing about 100 vaccinations a week. So between all of us, we have 73% of those vaccinated are Greene County residents. The others are from surrounding counties. Okay. Penny, do you have similar numbers in Monroe? Well, we certainly have done uh, a lot of vaccinations. I don't know exactly how many uh, people have been residents. I would say most of our people are are residents. I know that we have a lot of residents who have went other places in order to get them because the demand has been very high um, here in the county. And the main thing is that we want people vaccinated. So we want all Hoosiers to get vaccinated wherever they can get it. I think one other, if I can make one other comment, just to make sure it's clear, is that this unusual side effect, this cerebral venous sinus thrombosis that has put the Johnson & Johnson vaccine on pause is not seen with the other vaccines. There have been no cases, zero cases of thrombocytopenic clotting like is being looked at for the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. There have been none of those cases with Pfizer or Moderna. And I think it's worth repeating none with those two and six out of 6.8 million with the Johnson and Johnson. 
Absolutely. Right. There, yeah. Dr. Hismalis, what about folks who have gotten the J&J &J vaccine? Because I know several people and they are a bit anxious. I mean, what would you advise them now? Sure, absolutely. So one of the other reasons why the pause took place is the six cases uh, of this cerebral venous thrombosis, this thrombocytopenic, which is sort of a unique subclass of blood clotting. Um, uh, but um, that was identified in about the first 50% of people who received the J&J &J vaccine because a, a good number of people have received that vaccine in the last two weeks. And this blood clot, uh, seeing this blood clotting issue, if you know associated, seemed to occur perhaps six to 13 days after the dose. So there may be people who receive the dose who might have some risk if indeed this is all confirmed and, and true. And so that's another reason for pausing. Um, so what are the symptoms that we're looking for in patients as, we, as we're trying to look at this and studying it? It would be things like um, headache, nausea, vomiting, lethargy, um, seizures, things of that sort. And if you had anything that was of concern you could uh, go to the emergency department, go to your physician, and you should be able to pretty easily do a blood count, look at the platelets, and determine whether this condition exists or not. Okay, Dr. Zmalis, I have one more here for you. There's a Dr. Christopher Murray. Um, he's a director of Institute for Health at the University of Washington in Seattle, but he is predicting that um, you know new cases are going to go down over the summer, but then we're going to see quite a surge in cases by the end of the year, just as people get vaccinated and they start moving around a lot more. So I'm curious if you've looked at any of these models and what you think, um, what you think's in our future. Well, that is of course the concern. And as Petty, as uh, I'm sorry, as Penny mentioned, we're worried about the variants. They're more transmissible um, and they appear to cause more severe disease. And so we could see, um, increasing cases, uh, particularly if we have uh, inadequate levels of vaccination by the time fall comes. We didn't really see a dramatic seasonal uh, pattern so far with this virus. It seemed like it was uh, pretty uh, prevalent uh, throughout, um, but what he says is certainly a concern. Um, these vaccine companies, particularly Moderna and Pfizer, are working on wondering, considering along with the uh, FDA and NIH, whether they should be preparing booster doses uh, for such eventualities. Moderna has already stated that uh, they have a booster dose directed against new variants that they might make available as early as late this fall. So good questions and boy, we want to vaccinate everyone now so we don't end up with that kind of scenario later this year. And what do you think, and, and maybe Lynn can chime in too, um, about people who are going to start needing boosters? What do, we, what do we expect there? How long could this immunity last before people need to start getting boosters? Well, we're, we're really sort of jumping the gun when I speak about those things because we really don't know how long immunity lasts. There's good immunity with both, uh, with all of these vaccines, but published from Pfizer and Moderna, good immunity out past six months from uh, immunization. And I think everyone suspects that immunity will last at least a year or two and maybe even longer. So we are following those people now to see how long do the antibodies last? How long do the immunities last? When do people, uh, do people get reinfected? Do they not? So I think we'll know over time, uh, but they want to be prepared so they can have uh, a booster available if it became necessary. Okay. And Penny, we've gotten several questions from people who are starting to travel again, but they have to get tested within a certain time frame of, of going on these trips. Um, what do you recommend for folks like that who are trying to figure out how they can meet these requirements to travel? Yeah, that can be a a difficult challenge in terms of when they need to 
how quickly they need to get those results back. Certainly that there is not a wait at, like there has been, you know, there we've had times when it was difficult to get in for testing and then the turnaround time was was long because there were so many tests being done. So the turnaround time right now is is pretty short. I would say usually it's within 48 hours. Um, most places we still currently have two places um, open kind of, I would say community sites. We have the community site um, at Morton Street um, that is open and free and people can go in and get tested. It is a PCR test. Uh, if someone is symptomatic, we have rapid antigen testing that can be done, but certainly if you're symptomatic, you don't want to be traveling. Um, and then the Optum site at the Armory is still open as well. That's secured, I believe, through June and the state secures those and um, will determine whether or not they'll keep them on past June. So those are the two primary locations. I mean, certainly some of the pharmacies and you know, physicians' offices, they, they can be available as well, but it can be a bit of a challenge if you need it quickly. And I don't have a perfect answer, except to say that those are your options at the moment. The university is continuing its mitigation testing too. Is it, That's a different kind of test than you're talking about, Penny? Well, they are continuing to do mitigation testing and they do an enormous amount of testing and it is wonderful, but it's not kind of routine. I want to, you know, I need to travel and I need a test. They may, they may accept that test if you had had it done. Um, I think that they always get nervous kind of talking for somebody else there. I think there may be an element of requesting a test at the university, but for the most part, they're telling people your time, it's your time to come in and get tested. I want to talk about the challenge that you've all faced and met uh, to a, a great degree with dealing with this public health crisis and the, the logistics of it. I want to start with, with Sherry Lewis in Greene County, and then I'll, I'll go to Lynn and then Penny, but just the idea of setting up these clinics and getting a, a, a vast number of people either tested for a time and then vaccinated for a time. And the challenge of doing that when it's really not been done um, before to this level in quite some time. Sure, I can really appreciate that question as well. Um, being a rural county and Green County is unique in the sense that we have such a huge land mass and just getting from one side of the county to the other uh, for individuals seeking service can provide a huge challenge for individuals. So for us, um, that's been the most difficult um, aspect of what we do, trying to get services to all. So being able to be mobile has been beneficial to us uh, in terms of hosting additional pop-up clinics in central um, to the county, um, like at our 4-H fairgrounds. Um, also resources has been a concern here in Greene County. Um, for us, you know, just as a state as a whole, you know, we are issued funds uh, based on your population. But when you're setting up a clinic, you know, your startup cost is going to be the same, no matter, you know, if you have 100,000 residents or 30,000 residents. So being able to work around financial constraints has been a concern. And for us here at Green County, without the help of volunteers, we would not be in the situation that we are in now and the number of individuals that we've been able to vaccinate. So, you know, those have been the challenges for us in, in a rural community. Yeah, I think I'm right when I say this, that Green County is the is the second largest um, county in the state by size, even though you have a small population. Yes. All right. Uh, Lynn, can you uh, address that too? Absolutely. Um, I definitely like agree with all of those all of those sentiments um i mean just like the resources in general kind of like i already like spoke to has been a huge issue 
for us because we didn't have extra resources to start these clinics. Um, so we've just been pulling our staff out of like, you know, normal day-to-day -day activities in the clinic to be able to run these vaccine clinics. And at most of our, I mean, definitely in our large offices, we run vaccine clinics all day, Monday through Friday. And then at our smaller clinics, we do um, two to three a week. And beyond that, we also go out into the community and give vaccines, um, you know, partnering with um, homeless shelters and migrant workers. Um, and we've done a lot of events like that. So that's on top of those clinics that we're running, um, you know, all day long in the clinics. And then um, we're also doing some at-home vaccinations. And we're actually going to be um, one of the partners um, with the state to to give in-home vaccinations. So yeah, it's just, it's it's been a lot. Um, we're all kind of, like I said at the beginning, we're all tired, but I think that's <laughs> across the board. Everybody, everybody's tired of COVID and everything that's going on. Um, so just, you know, doing our best. I, I do think it's better to be on this side of COVID than, you know, on the beginning. Um, because at least we, you know, we are at the point where we're, we're vaccinating people and making some headway. Anyway, we have about two minutes to go. You wanted to add something? Sure. Well, I would echo all of those things. And, you know, without volunteers that we've had, without other community resources, you know, for us, our firefighters are helping with homebound. Uh, we went from, I think, 50 Medical Reserve Corps volunteers to we've got well over 500 now. Um, all of those things are partnerships with um, the university and the hospital and um, the city and the university. And that's the other challenge that we've had is that we have, you know, a large university, but again, very blessed that they had the type of testing program that they've had and the good relationships that we've had. But again, resources on every level. And I know this is, you know, this is tasks, everyone's resources, the hospital, the private sector, um, but certainly public health and public health in Indiana is not uh, funded well and um, everybody is doing their their very best but we've also had to move staff from normal routines and you know we still have to issue birth records and uh, inspect septic you know installations and all of those kinds of routine things that go on so um, everything changes every day as I said we pivot constantly all right well thank you very much we are out of time and thank you Penny Caudill from the Monroe, Monroe County Health Department, Sherry Lewis from the Greene County Health Department, Dr. Tom Rosmalis from IU Health South Southern Indiana Physicians, and Lynn Toma from HealthLink. Um, thank you very much for everything you've done during this. Uh, you've done a great job. Uh, for producer Benta Boutier, my co-host Sarah Whitmire, and engineer John Bailey, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. This has been Noon Edition. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU Public Radio. A podcast of this program is available at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Production support comes from Smithville, fiber internet, streaming TV, home security, and automation in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com. And from Bloomington Health Foundation partnering with local organizations and citizens to invest in programs that address our community's health needs. Bloomington Health Foundation, improving health and well-being takes a community. More at bloomhf.org.